Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 166, recorded on May 18th, 2022. The Cloud Pod eagerly awaits the Microsoft pay increases. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. How's it going? It's going well. Great. We're still without Peter, uh, not because he's not back from vacation, because we can't we can't make schedules align for all four of us to save our lives right now. <laughs> so hopefully we get everyone back next week. We'll see. Uh, but uh, we are also off on our recording day next week too because of my travel. So yeah, we'll see see how it goes. But uh, we've got a ton of news because KubeCon happened. Uh, Google had some events happening. There's just lots to talk about. So let's get into it before we get too far along uh, in the night. Uh, AWS is signing a strategic collaboration agreement with Amazon Web Services and IBM to deliver software as a service on AWS. IBM says that organizations are looking for industry-leading services and solutions that allow them to be nimble, flexible, and continuously scalable. And this need is further compounded as demand grows to run software both on-premise and access hybrid workloads. Uh, the IBM products that will be available include, and I, I, I note that these were all, of course, named by AWS because they're AWS-level naming, <laughs> uh, IBM API Connect, IBM DB2, and then it gets weird. IBM Observability by Instana, Maximo Application Suite, Security, Reacta, I think is how it's supposed to be pronounced, because it's R-E-A-Q-T-A, IBM Security Trustier, IBM Security Verify, and IBM Watson Orchestration with more services coming later this year. And of course, you'll be able to purchase this via the AWS Marketplace or via the AWS Marketplace private offer. Uh, of course, IBM also has 10,000 certified AWS employees uh, and 13 competencies uh, that you can use from them to get consulting and help you get all of these uh, wonderful products to work in your environment. Because if you've ever dealt with IBM software, you know it's archaic and terrible <laughs> and will take a consultant to make it work. Yeah, it's, I find it funny that you know AWS is finally partnering with someone to, to offer software through their marketplace and it's IBM. Like That's, that's, that's unexpected. Well, money talks, and when you write billions of dollar checks to, I'm sure Amazon listens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I think we talked maybe even last year about how it's the services that probably bring in more money than um, than the hardware, and IBM IBM Cloud isn't uh, isn't particularly mature compared with Amazon's cloud. So if they want to sell their services to a wider audience, then Amazon's the place to do it. Yeah, I mean, many of the. Uh... You know, many of the clouds that IBM has tried have ultimately failed. <laughs> so they've they've only bought you know I think three cloud providers so far that have all gone in the way of the dodo bird. It seems like so. Yeah, partner with Amazon, partner with Azure, partner with Google. I think you'll have a better time of it. I don't have any familiarity with these IBM products, but yeah, they're you know they're historically it is sort of very tricky to sort of onboard to any of their products just because it's you know acquisitions layered on layered and layered. And so to get even just a small POC sort of running in an MVP fashion with IBM is very tricky in a lot of cases. So maybe this is the, the quick way to do it. I like it. Yeah, I guess if you think about cloud migrations and things, it's always going to be difficult. Or oh, we have this ancient DB2 um, database in a data center somewhere or under somebody's desk, more likely. So it makes it easier to do a cloud migration if, if these become managed services. I can't remember the name of the uh, the cloud provider they bought recently that most people know. SoftLayer, that's it. That's what I was trying to find. Two billion dollar acquisition. Hmm. And what are they doing with SoftLayer now? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny when you go to their Wikipedia site how many acquisitions this company does, and like you see the names and you're just like, well, I remember that, and then it went away, and like, oh, it went away because it was it was bought by IBM. It's, I think the only one that I kind of recognize here that's still really a name is Red Hat. Everything else is sort of not really a thing anymore, mm-hmm. including former sponsor Turbonomic, who apparently was bought in June of 2021. Oh, I did. See, maybe that's why they stopped sponsoring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Amazon is announcing the general availability of Nitro, TPM 2.0, and UFI Secure Boot in Amazon EC2. These features make it possible for customers to use TPM-dependent applications in their EC2 instances, and the Nitro TPM conforms to the TPM 2.0 spec, making it easier to migrate existing on-premise workloads that use TPM functionalities to EC2. Uh, UFI Boot now supports native encryption solutions like BitLocker and others for secure boot and signature verification use cases, and will store all the encryption key data inside of that TPM chip to make sure your systems are working securely. 
Yes, it's pretty neat actually, because if you think about TPM, it's always been a hardware device, and with the sort of ephemeral nature of VMs in the cloud, it's uh, sort of flies in the face of what TPM is supposed to do. You know, you, you can't move your workload to another server and then have access to the same TPM because it doesn't exist on that machine. Once the keys are inside, you can often not get them out again in a, in a you know in in a complete way. So you could reconstruct them on another machine. So this this is really um, an interesting pivot for the security uh, minded people because now it's, it's no longer a piece of hardware it's virtualized in the nitro platform and you can choose to either allow that um, tpm data to float between instances if the instance is replaced or you can make it so that it, it's only pinned to a single instance um, and you can store critical information in there so it's, it's pretty cool it's going to open up a whole, whole bunch of new use cases yeah i always thought tpm was slightly different like you know securing uh, a workload in an insecure environment, right? So if you, you know, were maybe doing an ephemeral stand-up somewhere, you know, for to get your service to the, you know, closer to the customers, but you don't quite have dedicated space, and so you'd want to secure it with something like this. And so it's, I'm sort of, you know, like the idea of doing that in the cloud is is sort of breaks my head a little bit. I'm trying to trying to make it make sense. <laughs> Most experience I have with this is dealing with my computer trying to get to go upgrade to Windows 11. Uh, which require TPM to be enabled and to be using GUID boot disks. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, beyond that, like how it works and all the magic, I, I don't really know. I, it's definitely an area that I'm a little vague on, but, you know, it has lots of opportunities for security and ensuring that secure boot pattern, which I know we've, I think we talked about in the past in the show when like Oracle was threatening that, you know, Amazon's environment, if you, you know, get bare metal server, there could still be stuff hidden in the firmware that people put their, you know, maliciously, and then Amazon had the big article back saying, no, it doesn't. We actually do all this stuff. And there's been lots of talk about how to ensure these signature verifications exist, and TPM is the easiest way to do that. Yeah. I mean, the, the UEF, UEF, I can't speak, UEFI. UEF, UEFI. I just call it UFI. <laughs> UFI, there you go. That's a lot easier. The, the UFI boot's going to be useful, too, because I had some VMs I wanted to move, and I couldn't move because they're, they're built in, built to only work with uh, UFI boot. Couldn't move them. Now I can. Isn't that, a, isn't that a bit of a problem in a, like a virtual environment where you want to be motion if you can't move the server because the UFI bit's not there? It seems like a problem. <laughs> so I imagine there's pluses and minuses to all things. Mm-hmm. It's a lot faster to boot. It is. It is really fast. It is impressive. All right. Well, AWS, of course, is a top priority of AWS, one of their key uh, tenants. And to show their support by increasing, uh, they're going to increase their support by investing $10 million in Open Source Security Foundation or Open SSF uh, over the next three years. This is a big deal as they will continue investing in upstream critical OSS patches with security pull requests, etc. cetera, uh, which is nice. Thanks, Amazon, for you know fixing OpenSSL because we know that wouldn't go so well. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's great to see a company the size of AWS, you know, putting their money in, into security and benefiting the entire open source community. So I, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see this move and, you know, it's a great PR, which is why they announced it this like this, but you know, the, it also secures a lot of things and adds a lot of protection. So it's great. How many hours of work do you think that represents $10 million? That seems like a, a fair amount of work. Mm-hmm. Time and time investment for people. Mm-hmm. Over three years. I'm trying to do the math in my here. Okay, so that's three <laughs> years. Just talk amongst yourselves while I do math. Hold on. That's do, three. Do, 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 3.3 million. <laughs> Carry the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really great radio, isn't it? Divided by. <laughs> Next week, watching paint dry. Salary. So it's, it's <laughs> roughly the equivalent of investing in like 14 people in the U.S. Yeah. Or probably you invest in, you know, maybe 30 people in India or some other low-cost region in the world. So it sounds like a big number <laughs> until you do the math. <laughs> well, two pizza team, right, for a year? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. A couple of two pizza teams. Yeah. Well, if you're running EKS anywhere, Amazon has now made available to you a new Amazon curated software package uh, that extends the core functionality of Kubernetes on your EKS Anywhere cluster. Uh, you can install the Harbor package as a local container registry starting May 13th, with the emissary ingress package and the support for service type load balancing through Metal LB coming in a few months' time. Uh, so this is basically 
anything you need to actually make your containers work is typically installed as a package. And now you're getting uh, blessed and curated ones from AWS. So it's a, it's a nice functionality mm-hmm. if you need it. I mean, Kubernetes is is complex enough. And so anything that you can take off, you know, from a maintenance or support sort of stand, you know, this is, you know, going to help out. So great. And anything I don't have to do, like figure out how to, you know, stand up my own, you know, harbor or, or local registry somehow, like I happily just use whatever's provided for me. It's great. Yes, please take away this garbage that I don't want to deal with anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and our final AWS announcement is a new improved console experience for CloudWatch. But don't get too excited. It's just widgets. Well, and a little bit of uh, navigation enhancements. Uh, there's three new widgets for you. Gauges that you visualize a number, such as memorization in the context of min and max values, making it easy to see how close you are to predetermined threshold capacity limits. A spark line capability to the number widget, which helps you see the trend line of a number. And a minimap feature uh, for the line widget, which allows you to zoom in and with a line graph without losing the overall time range, which all sounds pretty benign to me. And then the navigation enhancements are giving you are uh, new favorites and recently visited custom and automatic dashboards, alarms, and log groups from the favorites and recent options in the navigation panel. So uh, that's not what I really wanted, Amazon. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> you trying, but there's a lot more you could be doing. <laughs> It's uh, as much as I, you know, pan the Elasticsearch, their, their Canvas product is awesome. And if if AWS came anywhere close to providing that kind of dashboarding and that kind of widget, that that would be that would be awesome. But I, I discovered these new um, dashboards today when I was browsing through some RDS stuff, and uh, it didn't work properly. I clicked on it, all of a sudden, like half the page disappeared. Whether it's the, the frame wasn't right or something, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think it's still a bit of a work in progress. I mean, they just announced it on Tuesday. Give them, give them a couple of days to work out the bugs, Jonathan. <laughs> Testing prod. Okay. <laughs> Testing prod. Uh, well, Google's been busy, and they've been busy uh, because they had their security summit. Google I.O. was last week where they announced new phones. For those who care about phones, I don't. Jonathan does. Uh, and then all kinds of other search enhancements, ad advertising, all kinds of stuff. But they did have something for us in the Google world, Google Cloud world, that is. And that is a new database introducing AlloyDB for PostgreSQL to free yourself from expensive legacy databases. Uh, Google says enterprises are struggling to free themselves from those legacy database systems and need alternative options to modernize their applications. And at Google I.O., they have announced a preview of AlloyDB for PostgreSQL, a fully managed PostgreSQL compatible database service that provides a powerful option for modernizing workloads. Compared to standard PostgreSQL, AlloyDB was more than four times faster for transactional workloads and up to 100 times faster for analytical work queries. And they say AlloyDB was uh, two times faster for tra- transactional workloads. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh. <laughs> it's it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> yeah. AlloyDB was, <laughs> AlloyDB was also two times faster for transactional workloads than Amazon's comparable service, which I don't know why they just to say Aurora, because we all know this is Aurora, guys. Yeah. Like what you're not you're not fooling anybody. It's like negative <laughs> SEO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, AlloyDB combines the best of Google scale out compute and the storage industry leading availability, security, and AI ML powered management with full PostgreSQL compatibility, paired with performance, scalability, manageability, and reliability benefits that enterprises expect to run their mission critical applications. AlloyDB is the next major milestone in their journey to support customers' heterogeneous and migrations after recent tools like Oracle to Postgres CMA conversion and data replication capabilities of DMS. And if you're asking yourself, well, what's so special about Alloy? I'm glad you asked. Alloy's DB Core is intelligent database-optimized storage service built especially for Postgres SQL. AlloyDB disaggregates compute and storage at every layer of the stack using the same infrastructure building blocks that power large-scale Google services. Additional investments in analytical acceleration, embedded AI ML, and automatic tiering of data means that AlloyDB is ready to handle any workload you throw at it with minimal management overhead, all while maintaining compatibility with PostgreSQL 14. Uh, It does have an industry-leading availability of 99.99% inclusive of your maintenance. Uh, The real-time business insights is via a vectorized columnar accelerator that stores data and memory in optimized columnar format for faster scans and aggregations. And the pricing is transparent and predictable with no expensive proprietary licensing and no opaque I.O. charges. Hey, that's a shot at Aurora right there. (laughs) Storage is automatically provisioned and customers are only charged what they use with no additional storage costs for read replicas. A free ultra-fast cache automatically provisioned in addition to instance memory allows you to maximize your price and performance. And there's ML-assisted management and insights. 
which Alloy handles database patching, backups, scaling, and replication review, but goes further by using adaptive algorithms for ML, for PostgreSQL vacuum management, storage and memory management, data tiering, analytical acceleration, and it learns about your workload and intelligently organizes your data across memory, cache, and durable storage. And it also has built-in integration with Vertex AI, allowing you to call models directly with a query or a transaction. And this means higher throughput, lower latency, and augmented insights without having to write any additional application code. Ooh, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a big announcement. Uh, there's a lot in here, you know, that is is pretty neat. There's a lot that I'm a little like, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, you know, because it's the, one of the hardest things to do is figure out what you know, where to store that data so that you're, you know, can return a fast query. And so if this really works the way it says with all the ML to load it in the right place and, 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 you know, using, you know, learning your application model, access models to figure that out, then that's going to be fantastic. Especially like vacuum management and those things, which can kill your performance in a typical app. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping it works as, as it said, because, you know, I'm terrible at data structures. And so I need, database software to, to compensate. <laughs> Need all the help I can get with my queries. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. And I do like that. There's no, the IO charges because that is sort of like when you forget to include that in your model and you're storing, you know, large sets of data, like it can be a nasty surprise. Yeah. I'm surprised they're, they're also offering that at all. I mean, the, the pricing is, Pretty competitive to Aurora, at least you know what it looks like on the surface. And you know, the fact they're not including that makes me worry that when they get to pro, you know to GA pricing, that all of a sudden there's a huge uplift for that because you're not paying for that IO. Because you know, writing a thousand small queries versus writing a lot of really big table charges with you know binary objects and things in, in Postgres would be really expensive for them to not charge. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little, I'm a little perplexed if there's going to be a price increase in this later. Yeah, and it's Google, right? So you can't trust them. Yeah, can't trust <laughs> them. <laughs> they might. I found the name kind of weird because AlloyDB used to be a, a MySQL rewrite that was rewritten in Go years ago, like three or two years, three years ago maybe. Hmm. Um, so the fact that they've used the same name, I mean, I guess open source is open source. It's not a trademark name or anything, but it's, it's just, a, just strange that, um, that they would use the same name anyway. Mm-hmm. And this is why your open source project should have a, a trademark registered to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was actually surprised. You know, I, why I know Postgres is, is definitely becoming kind of the standard that many startups aspire to for their databases. Um, MySQL is still pretty popular as well, and so I was I was a little surprised they didn't copy the Aurora model where they did both. Uh, so I would not be entirely shocked to hear that MySQL just didn't make the announcement, but that it would be coming sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not mentioned in the article, so I'm purely speculating at this point that it'll come in the future. It, it might not. Wow. And alloys, you know, a mix of different metals. So perhaps, perhaps it'll become a suite of DBMSs. Yeah, if they could do a SQL Server for me. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can see being an alloy DB for Postgres, alloy DB for MySQL, <clears throat> Aurora for Postgres, Aurora for MySQL. I think, uh, I think we found their their plan. Yeah, I mean, it would not it would not shock me. And you could roll these out for the next you know one a year for the next couple of years and be in really good place. So I and I think again. Postgres is not a bad first choice just because of the heavy interest by startups in general um, around Postgres, which is one of their big markets is startups. So it, it makes sense to me. And if we can get enough, you know, sort of push towards that direction and get, you know, closer to a standard, you know, it'll benefit the industry wide just because like you're not, because you're not pigeonholed on a single technology and there's a standard, there's lots of different options for moving stuff around. So that's, you know, I think Google is, you know, trying to address that issue. And, you know, not by trying to replace Microsoft SQL, but trying to sort of prop up an open source standard. Yeah. Mm. I, I did think it was interesting because, uh, you know, kind of Spanner was kind of how I saw their their attack on Aurora. But the, the problem they were having with Spanner was that, you know, people were so worried about the lock-in of it. Um, and so I think it was like a month ago or two, maybe, they announced that PostgreSQL interface for um you know, for Spanner, and I thought that was kind of what their direction was going to be like. Oh, okay, you're gonna you're gonna build standardized interfaces with Postgres and MySQL on top of Spanner. You get all the benefits of what you have in the back end, and then we, you know, everyone stops talking about vendor lock in with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I thought the play was going to be because it, it would make sense. You know, you already built this engine, uh, and maybe that's what AlloyDB is under the hood in many ways is just a uh, you know it, it's Spanner but with a, a different look to it. 
Well, I, I think it is a page straight out of the the AWS playbook. You know, the, offer your customers millions of ways to do the same thing and let them choose. Give them that comfort and flexibility. So it's, yeah, I'm worried about lock in. Great, you can use our our cloud, mm-hmm. you know, cloud SQL product with Postgres, or you can use our Alloy DB, which is you know Postgres compatible, um, or you use Spanner, which is our mm-hmm. global you know database. That's awesome. So. Yeah, with no code changes required, <laughs> as I like to remind us constantly. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, after after Google won the 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 case that Oracle brought against them for the the Java API, it kind of on a slight sidetrack, I guess, it kind of makes me makes me realize that um, being having the having the legal right to copy an interface, but not an implementation, means that Google could implement a, a Microsoft SQL Server front end to whatever they want. Just like Babelfish is trying to do, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's that's hopefully going to open up a whole bunch of opportunities for moving away from those very expensive databases. Yeah, they're great. Well, Business Insider had an article that I thought we should talk about here. Uh, in March, Google does their annual uh, Google Google Geest survey, which tracks how employees in each unit feel about everything. Uh, and apparently at Google Cloud, 54% of them felt the promotion process was unfair and that there were barriers to decision-making and promises that leaders were committed to addressing their feedback. And uh, sadly, since I've said those words before, <laughs> and I'm willing to address your feedback in a survey, I feel the pain of everyone at Google who's dealing with this. Uh, Business Insider talked to 20 current and former Google employees and said that since uh, Thomas Curry came in three years ago, the division has jettisoned much of the whimsical and transparent corporate culture of Google adopting the buttoned-up cutthroat sales culture of old guard software companies like Oracle. And there's a quote here, no organization is perfect, but they are incredibly top-down and leader-driven. Uh, it's a weird way of running a business, and it's quite draconian, and there are not a lot of trust. Uh, and then uh, there's a quote here from a Google Cloud spokesperson, we're proud of our success as the fastest-growing major cloud provider. As we continue to scale, we are focused on building a world-class team committed to serving the needs of our customers and partners. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case when you've had six company VPs that quit Google this year and 10 the year before. And many uh, sources say Curian has adopted processes from companies like Oracle, Microsoft, including weekly pipeline reviews of customers and an account review system where groups meet to poke holes in each other's plans. And the rest of Google lives in this world where there's a fundamental separation between the product and revenue. Uh, and that is just not the case inside the Google Cloud, where revenue is everything. It's interesting because it's, you know, on one hand, I don't like this type of corporate culture being sort of top-down driven and, and not empowering your employees. On the other hand, like it's really hard to argue with the results, you know, the, the, the revenue increases and just, you know, how much Google cloud has been, you know, in the red comparatively to previous years, like it's, they are making progress towards that. So if, if that's your priority, then this may be the system for it, but, yeah, I wouldn't want to work there, and I feel sorry for everyone that loses the good company culture they once had. Well, it, you know, it's sort of weird because they they have their own uh, their own offices, their own their own facilities. Like it could be a completely different company in some ways and how you treat it, but it's still Google. Twenty people though is not a representative sample. No, of course not. I mean, were they twenty people from the same team? Were they twenty people across teams? From well, region? former, former, and current. So you have no idea. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, they, these surveys are done all the time, where you know, press people reach out to you know and say, if you worked at Google, we'd like to talk to you for hundred dollar gift card. <laughs> you know, dumb things like that. So yeah, it, is it is it a vein of truth or not? I don't know. But uh, is it still interesting to see that there's, uh, you know, the TK culture, which is one of the big highlights of him coming on the board. And replace Diane Green was that his culture was going to be so much better, and maybe it's not. So we'll see how that pans out over time. But you know they don't have any problem hiring people right now, so um, I think they're doing just fine. <laughs> well, the Security Summit uh, they talked about the government seeing increasingly complex cyber attack campaigns and a focus on zero trust, software supply chain security, cyber cybersecurity threat management, and strengthening cyber attack detection and responses. And these edicts have all come onto the federal agencies, which can be a problem due to the cost, scalability, engineering, and lack of resources. And so Google is going to help those agencies, uh, which is a nice way of saying we're going to market to them and look like help, uh, by announcing the Autonomic Security Operations, or ASO, for the U.S. public sector, 
a framework to modernize analytics and threat management that's aligned with the objectives of EO 14028, which is executive order, and uh, the OMB M-21-31, powered by Google Chronicle and Simplify. Capabilities uh, specifically for the server include a SIM, a store capability, a Yuba, and an EDR, as well as threat intelligence, making your government lives much easier if you're using Google Cloud, which I don't know how many of those of you guys are out there, because I know AWS and Azure keep arguing with each other about who's the bigger cloud for government, and I'm not so sure how much goes to Google versus those, but there you go. If you're on Google, you have a solution. I mean, it is, you know, it is largely a marketing, like here's the products you need to use to meet these these uh, objectives, right? Frameworks, but it is also sort of like, there's a lot of, I think, ambiguity into how to protect cloud workloads, especially if it's sort of a newer technology or you're moving to the cloud. So I, I, in general, I still like these these announcements because it is sort of providing what a lot of people ask for, which is like, tell me how I should be securing this. Tell me what I need to be doing. And you know, they, maybe they don't have the ability to hire an army of security analysts to comb over logs. Yep. Easy button's always good, and, and package solutions that solve government edicts and executive orders is always a plus, in my opinion. Well, I mean, the public sector is notoriously behind in security mm-hmm. updates and security fixes, and so yeah. Well, there, there's been a pretty awesome. concerted effort in the government right now too to uh, under the Shields Up initiative to really focus heavily on how do they secure their resources and, and access points uh, mm-hmm. to protect against Russian hackers and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so it's it's a big deal right now in the government. There's a lot of concern about cyber warfare, what's happening uh, out there in the world. So. Mm-hmm. I was I was looking for a movie to watch this weekend. <clears throat> it's going to be filled with dreams because you know all I can think of is if you build it, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> I can come up with better baseball movies for you to watch than Field of Dreams. So just no, no, I was just I was just thinking in terms of Google delivering all these services because they want they want the customers. You know they they have to yeah. they have to have the services before they're going to get the customers because those are table stakes 100%. for public 100%. public sector. I'm just going to watch War Games. No. Oh, War Games. Yeah, I see. Games I can do that. <laughs> What's the password again? Joshua. <laughs> uh, well, uh, particularly Joshua is not the password for the Google Cloud SAML capabilities that are coming. Last year, Google released Workload Identity Federation, which allowed workloads running on-premises or in other clouds to federate with an external IDP and call Google Cloud resources out using a service account key. And they did this uh, through OIDC authentication, which is great, the OpenID Connect standard. Uh, But Google is now extending that support to the SAML federation. Uh, So now you can use SAML or OpenID Connect. Uh, If you're using uh, either of those, you can now integrate seamlessly into your Google Cloud workloads and have cross-service connectivity all without a service account key, which is pretty cool. Yeah, anything that furthers the use of temporary vended keys, I'm all for. Um, there's a lot of identity providers that only speak SAML. And so this allows a lot more flexibility than you had before. So sweet. Yeah, actually, I, probably I, a step backwards for Active Directory, though. <laughs> <laughs> Any step backwards for Active Directory is a good thing. Uh, you know, it is, it is weird they chose OpenID Connect as the first one because definitely SAML is leading the space for yeah. identity federation. Uh, where OpenID Connect is actually much easier to implement and much, you know, I actually like it better, but, you know, it's hard to find those providers who support it. Other than Okta, which, you know, mm-hmm. is almost hacked. So it's always a question. I mean, it's a weird flow for a lot of these things. So I don't know. Like, I think it is sort of people don't quite understand the OpenID yet because it's not strictly, is this person authorized? And they have what? Well, and they took so long to learn how to do. Um, you know, how to do SAML. They don't want to relearn how to do OpenID yeah. Connect. <laughs> uh, well, Google saw that $10 million that Amazon uh, put down and said, hold my beer. Uh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to also commit to the Open Security uh, Foundation, Open SSF. Uh, they're, they point out that they are one of the largest maintainers, contributors, and users of open source and is deeply involved in helping make the open source software ecosystem more secure through efforts, including Open Source Security Foundation, the Open Source Vulnerabilities Database, and the OSS Fuzz efforts. And last week, Google joined the OpenSSF, the Linux Foundation, and industry leaders for a meeting to advance the Open Source Software Security Initiative discussed during the January White House Summit on Open Source Software. But instead of just putting money into their product or uh, you know doing a couple uh, 
uh, Sprint teams or Pizza Box teams. They're also releasing a new Google Cloud product to help. The Assured Open Source Software Service uh, allows enterprises and public sector users of open source software to easily incorporate the same OSS packages that Google uses in their own developer workflows. Packages created by the Assured OSS Service uh, have regularly scanned, uh, analyzed, and fuzz tested for vulnerabilities. They have corresponding and rich metadata incorporating container artifact analysis data. They're all built with cloud build, including evidence of verifiable SLSA compliance, are verifiably uh, signed by Google, and are distributed from an artifact registry secured and protected by Google themselves. In addition to this, they are partnering with SNCC uh, and announcing their intent to collaborate to further help developers understand the risk and impact of their OSS dependencies, and the assured OSS will be natively integrated into the SNCC solution for joint customers to use wherever they're developing code. And SNCC vulnerabilities, triggering actions, and remediation recommendations will come available to joint customers in the Google Cloud security and software development lifecycle tools to enhance the developer experience. It's interesting learning more about that, but I honestly couldn't be bothered to fill out a form because it's there's not really a lot of documentation for it yet. So if you're interested, click here so we can have somebody somebody uh, give you a call. But I'm kind of wondering how they're, they're going to deliver that. Is it going to be free for everyone? Is it going to be if, only if you've got a Google workload that you can get those um, sort of trusted binaries? A little unclear. But, yeah, but also I mean, that somebody's that's doing all this legwork. Yeah, and especially the, you know, if they're using it themselves, right? That's, you know, because that's the, the best way to kick the tires on something like this. Yeah, it'd definitely be interesting to see how they roll it out. Is it something they're going to make publicly available to all, which would be really cool? Or is it something you only have to, you have to go on the Google Cloud to use or or some other combination of you know secret handshakes to get access to? I, I don't know. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, well, Anthos uh, got updated to 1.11 this week, uh, part of the KubeCon announcements that they made. Uh, and the new features of 1.11 include Anthos service mesh topology diagrams for GKE on AWS, which are pretty pictures of how you're screwed trying to troubleshoot your networking. <laughs> Uh, support for Windows Worker nodes, which is never great. Uh, support for dedicated host instances for GKA on AWS, which is basically running on bare metal. And then application logging for Linux and Windows workloads, which I was surprised did not exist already, uh, which is always fun little edge cases you find out about tools. But uh, those are pretty nice enhancements for 111, uh, and I look forward to seeing what else they come out with. And I'll just jump into KubeCon here so we cover both of them. Uh, lots of things, of course, at KubeCon EU. Uh, they started the transition of Knative and Istio to the CNCF, uh, and they... Google highlighted their work on new capabilities, including the Batch API, improved scheduling performance, and leading the dev efforts of Q, which is spelled K-E-U-E-U, a native Kubernetes work queue. The open source offerings now have the config connector and config sync, so you can keep all of your clusters in sync and running smoothly, joining the open source gatekeeper product they announced last year. And then the Anthos configuration management is now open source and being integrated directly into the KPT project uh, for all your package orchestration and config sync needs. Uh, so quite a few enhancements being dropped by uh, Google and incorporated into public open source tools, which means they're coming to your Kubernetes cluster near you, no matter where it's at. That's very cool. But I think they should have named it Keanu, because I keep reading it as Keanu. I mean, I, I, of Q. I haven't heard anybody say it other than myself, and I just went with Q because that's what I assumed was the joke. But Keanu's great. I, I'm, I'm with you for this. Yeah. 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 Other than that, KubeCon seemed kind of quiet this week. I don't, I don't know. Do you guys see anything from KubeCon that was, you're like, oh, that's cool? Or were you guys even paying attention to it? No, I mean, I, you know, it's, I, KubeCon has been a little dark for me in the last few years in general. Like there's, you know, little, little announcements here and there. It comes out of every single one. So I was actually pretty happy with some of the things that they announced. Um, you know, I, it's not life changing, you know, I think. So it's, it's hard to sort of, it's hard to make that big splash. Unless it's going to really change your day to day, but I mean, that's, that's also a good sign too that it, it, 
you know, things are starting to mature and stabilize and that things are coming to normal. And so, you know, the big revolutionary changes to Kubernetes maybe are, are kind of on the wayside or, or, you know, will be actually revolutionary at this point. Uh, and, you know, we're really trying to get better at what we're doing already, which we're doing a lot in Kubernetes these days mm-hmm. um, from networking and, and service mesh and pod recovery and all the cluster management stuff. Like there's a lot going on in that space. So, I'm sure everyone kind of also breathes a sigh of relief that nothing majorly new and fancy came out that they had to not support. <laughs> yeah. You're going to all have to update your clusters to 2. whatever because to get the new fancy hotness. You're like, <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure we'll see some big stuff from KubeCon US, though, uh, which I think is coming up in the fall. So we'll see what, the, what they get out of the fall event. Uh, let's move on to Microsoft, which had a very busy week as well, not in the Kubernetes space, but in all kinds of other ways. Uh, so first of all, Microsoft, and we talked about this with Amazon, so we only felt it was fair to mention it here as well, for Microsoft is significantly boosting their merit-based raises and stock-based compensation for its employees and middle managers, showing just how challenging it is to keep your tech workforce intact, given the larger dynamics playing in the economy and the job marketplace. This follows the decision by Amazon to double its maximum base pay for corporate and tech workers in February, and Microsoft will double its global merit-based salary increases and increase its range for annual stock-based compensation by at least 25%. Uh, Satya Nadella had a couple quotes here that in an internal memo he sent. Time and time again, we see that our talent is in high demand because of the amazing work you do to empower our customers and partners. Thank you for that. Uh, and then he goes on to say, but it's not just about compensation. People come to stay, come to and stay at Microsoft because of our overall deal, our mission, our culture, our values, the meaning they find, the work they do, and the people they work with, and their compensation and rewards. We think holistically about this deal. Our mission and our purpose as a company have never been more timely or more important, and our culture underpins everything we do. And I can tell you for a fact that if I went to Microsoft, it's not because of any of that. It's all about the money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a kinder, gentler Microsoft. Than, than I mean, I definitely have Microsoft that I would be more interested in yeah. under Satya than I would have under Balmer, but I still yeah. never had any desire to work for Amazon or Microsoft or any of the big tech companies, to be honest. It just... You're just a, one cog in a very large machine of those companies. I, mean, I, I I hope that it's you know the exact opposite of of TK and and Google Cloud. You know where they're they are really focused on the values and the culture and and providing meaningful work. Because that is you know especially you know during the last year in the pandemic, like I, I you know I think a lot of people have sort of realized that there's a lot of different priorities out there. That's money is good. It doesn't buy happiness, but it buys a lot of things that can make me happy. Um, and so, you know, that's always good, but it's getting that fulfillment and enrichment is also super important. So it's not just a slog. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when you're a young 20 something tech guy, you're all about the money. And as you cross through your thirties and now that I'm now officially 40, I, uh, I realize <laughs> that I don't care as much about the money as I do about other <laughs> things that are more important, like work-life balance and other things. Cause you know, I have plenty of that other stuff. I just, yeah, so it does sort of change how your priorities change as you get older. It's uh, it's interesting. When you say officially forty, did you did you feel forty before you were actually forty? <laughs> no, no, and I still don't actually feel forty. Like, <laughs> like it came and went. And I was like, well, that was that was non-eventful. I didn't yeah. I didn't have an urgent need to go buy a Corvette or or you know shave my goatee or something crazy because I'm already bald, so it doesn't make any sense to do that. But uh, or grow it back. I didn't think I'd do that either. So. There you go. <laughs> The jewel in your hand didn't go off. No midlife crisis. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, Azure is getting into the Azure DNS private resolver game now in preview. Uh, Azure currently offers you two types of DNS, private and public. And the private DNS resolver enables you to query Azure private DNS zones from an on-premise environment and vice versa without provisioning instance-based DNS solutions. They actually called it infrastructure as a service DNS solutions, which is the way you say instance. Uh, It's available to you in multiple regions, and customers will be able to use these existing express routes and VPN technology and retire legacy DNS infrastructure to take advantage of the private resolver. So nice job copying Amazon. Not a bad call on this one. (laughs) It's pretty useful to be able to get the access to the private zones from on-prem, though. That's that's something that I think... um, even Amazon struggles with so. Yeah, you can do it, but it's it's not quite as front and center as as the servers make it as part of their service. Yeah. And, you know, in you're stringing together multiple things to do it. But I, you know, I love I, you know, the the traditionally hosted and the data center services. Like the beginning of lots of cloud journeys, you're usually plumbing back for things like DNS and 
you know, having to connect those. And now it's the the opposite where you're connecting into the cloud for your, your central managed services. So it's, it's a nice trend. I like it. Well, I have the shortest announcement ever from Azure. Uh, this, this blog post is literally like two sentences. Uh, they're now letting you stream logs from your container app as well as connect to con- the console of a running container to allow you to run shell scripts inside of your container. That's the whole announcement. And I only leave it here <laughs> versus cutting this lighting around like I wanted to because I actually tried to go use ECS Connect the other day mm-hmm. to actually go connect to a container. And after reading the documentation four times and only understanding about 40% of what it was, I said, this is not worth it. And I will continue to just troubleshoot my Fargate problem in another way. And I tried a bunch of other things that made it work through Fargate because trying to make ECS connect with like, you need to install a special package for the CLI and then there's like these special permissions you need. Like they make that hard <laughs> mm-hmm. and it is not embedded in the console in any way. Like, you know, you know, SSH connect uh, for instances is, you know, it's sort of in the console if you know where to look for it. So you don't have to go to that terrible uh, system, you know, simple systems manager to go find it. Uh, I need that for this because I, I will never use this feature without it being in the console and an easy click because that was woof, that was hard. And I, I'm know. actually shocked that there isn't any console support for it because I figured it would be a very quick after they enabled it at the, both the ECS agent and then within Fargate natively. Like it makes sense. And they were already doing all that work to capture sessions with System Manager. So it's shocking to me they haven't done that. But yeah, it's... It is frustrating when you get ECS Connect. It's you know the, the past the initial lift when you have to install stuff and things like that. It's a little bit painful, mm-hmm. but still. Well, know. and the the, the, well, the challenge I ran into is the documentation is very much assuming that I'm running an EC2 based instance with a role that allows me to do this thing. But I was using Fargate, which the documentation doesn't really like. It mentions you can do it, but like it doesn't really get into the specifics of how to do it step by step. And I was. Just, <laughs> It was like I couldn't even find people on the internet doing it or you know writing their own guides to it, which just tells you how how many people don't want this feature, and, was, and that might explain why it doesn't exist in the console. <laughs> like everyone thought they wanted it, and then they were like, "Yeah, that's too hard. I'm not doing that." Well, I mean, it's it, I, I wonder if they just missed their opportunity a little bit because you know people did ask for it for many many years. They finally delivered it, and they haven't really made it friendly to use. So it's just like people have figured out nine other ways to do it because. You had to previously. Well, and it's so hard that why would you try? So the usage is not mm-hmm. high enough to justify investing in it further. So like you kind of you kind of fulfilled your own prophecy. See, no one really wanted it because we made it. We, no one uses it because they didn't need it. It's like no, no, no one's using it because it's hard. Yeah, I like to make it chaos and Fargate. I like to make it difficult because it prevents people from doing silly things like, uh, you know, security teams from saying, log into all these containers and update all these packages or, you know, log into these containers and install antivirus. No, (laughs) I think there should be a very limited set of things you can do for debugging and collecting logs and things like this. And beyond that, treat it as as something that you shouldn't be messed around with. Yeah. Yeah, but I... In the case of this issue, I was troubleshooting with Fargate, which was, you know, because again, I'm using an EFS volume to attach to Fargate. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces involved in this whole thing because you got to have an access point to then map the permissions properly to do a bunch of things. Uh, and so, if the logging was better from Amazon, I would have needed to. Go, but like, it was it was like this point of like, okay, well, can I even write a file to the file system? Because I see the service starting, it runs, but when I try to actually write an object, I'm failing in the app. And so it was like, if I could get on the server, then I could actually see, like, what, is it a directory thing? Is it a, you know, if I could create any file, if I can't create anything, then I, like, it was just, it would have been a nice thing for troubleshooting this one particular issue. And then I just kept banging away at it and tried different permission sets and figured out finally, mm-hmm. oh, this is the site I'm missing and I, I solved my problem. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was more annoying than I expected it to be. And uh, anyway, so I'm glad to see Azure has this. Hopefully theirs is easier to use. <laughs> than, uh, than yeah. Amazon's. So best of luck to all of you. Uh, I actually uh, will not be trying it again until they make some enhancements, I think, uh, on the Amazon side. I think it's one of those things where don't wait until you need it. You know, Play with it beforehand, get it set up, because it is an install of local tools and, and permissions and things. And yeah, if you think you're ever going to need it, do the work up front, for sure. Not when you're in the middle of troubleshooting it for 12 hours and you're super mad at it, and you're like, I don't have time for this BS right now. <laughs> Picture you like rage flipping your laptop across the room. <laughs> Too expensive to rage flip it across. Yeah, the room. You know, something else on my desk might have thro- gone across the room. 
All right. Uh, well, the Microsoft Cloud for sustainability is available to you starting on June 1st. Uh, the general availability release of Cloud for sustainability will enable faster, broader transformation for organizations at varying stages of their sustainability journey. The new offering builds on over a decade of work Microsoft and their partners have done in sustainability. And Sustainable Manager is available for free test drive or purchase on June 1st to reduce your environmental impact of operations. Hey, green energy. What, what can't you mm-hmm. like about that? Mm-hmm. What's not to love? What's not to love? I don't. I still find it interesting. Uh, actually, someone asked me at my 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 job uh, about our carbon footprint of our physical data centers, and I was we had to go ask the vendor, and I was I had to go. I'd have a, I have a follow up conversation now. I'm like, okay, now I need to go talk to that guy and be like, why did you care? Like, walk me through it. <laughs> Maybe I can understand it better if someone explains it to me in layman's terms of like, hey, there's a tax credit we get, or <laughs> it's not just us being nice because we care about the environment. Like, I, Maybe that's all it is. I just don't know. It's one of those weird, mm-hmm. weird things. Well, I, I think that's why all the, the cloud providers are building those tools and dashboards is just like you had to go to the vendor, a million people ask them the same questions. Mm-hmm. This is just, you know, free up the support teams 101 right build a build a dashboard that you can just direct everyone to you can mine the data they can you know do do all kinds of transformations if they like yeah all right well our final story is microsoft is responding to the european cloud provider feedback with the new programs and principles uh a few weeks ago maybe a little bit about a month ago we talked about some additional antitrust scrutiny that's coming from the eu Uh, regarding licensing changes made by Microsoft back in 2019. Uh, At the time, Brad Smith said that he would be reviewing it, and he felt that some of those were predatory and that they would be resolving that issue. And they have now announced this at a recent event in Brussels. Uh, So they've done a couple things here. And so the first couple are all very European, uh, but important. The first thing Microsoft has done is set five European cloud principles that Microsoft is adopting to run their cloud business. Those include... Uh, Microsoft will ensure its public cloud meets Europe's needs and serves Europe's values, which you know seems obvious if you want to do business. <laughs> Number two, Microsoft will ensure its cloud provides a platform for the success of European software developers. Again, I would hope that's what your cloud does for European software developers. Number three, Microsoft will partner with and support European cloud solution providers. Again, seems kind of obvious. Uh, number four, Microsoft will ensure their cloud offerings meet European government's sovereign needs in partnership with local trusted technology partners, which could go in a bunch of different ways. Uh, Number five, Microsoft recognizes that European governments are regulating technology and they will adapt to and support these efforts, which basically means we're going to do what you you told us to and we're not going to fight you, is how I read that fifth one. But uh, it's interesting. They're all specifically vague and non-binding, right? Like, yeah. yeah, they're all very, very vague. <laughs> and interpretation can be in many different ways, but it's it's, yeah. a, it's an effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second new thing is a new initiative to support European cloud providers so they can host a wider variety of Microsoft products on their cloud infrastructure. This will make European cloud providers more competitive. Uh, these are the changes that Microsoft, uh, as Brad Smith, felt were a little bit predatory. And Brad Smith said even, uh, that he even participated in calls with CEOs of two of European's cloud providers. And he said the most compelling feedback for him was a CEO who said he was a victim of the friendly fire in Microsoft's competition with Amazon. And Brad uh, Smith said it was hard to hear, but he was right. So for the licensing changes for European cloud providers, which Microsoft clarified later, would be global. It's <laughs> all those on this article. These changes will be global changes. Yeah, the yeah. ability for cloud providers to offer Windows and Office as part of the complete hosted desktop solution that they can build, sell, and host on their own infrastructure. Expansion also enables them to provide their service to customers who buy Windows and Office software from other Microsoft partners or directly. And they're also addressing a pain point by they heard about fixing pricing for longer-term periods, which, which will provide pricing stability for customers longer. Windows and Office. Windows and Office. Uh-huh. So, so this basically means that Amazon people... and Google will actually be able to provide a true Windows desktop experience versus forcing you through terminal services. Right. But you have to pay for Office. Even well, if you don't want it. Well, I mean, I didn't say you had to do it together. I mean, they didn't get that specific in this press release. Well, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. maybe. The, the, the term says if you want Windows and Office. It's, it's specifically Windows and Office. Mm. You just want Windows? You're out of luck. I don't know maybe. if that's true. Oh, no. that's. I think that's very carefully chosen language. <laughs> I think so. Well, I mean, this is definitely a press release by lawyer. So that's, that's oh, what's yeah. <laughs> 
they also said that to fix Jonathan's concern about these complicated licensing terms, they are going to be adopting fair software licensing principles, uh, which provide simpler licensing and were created by the SIGREF and the SISPI organization in Europe. This means a clearly written licensing term, which better enables customers to readily determine their licensing costs and permit customers to determine their obligations more easily. And several fair software licensing principles are about moving licenses to the cloud, leveraging shared hardware, and having more flexibility in deployment options. In support of this, they will revise and expand software assurance. Today, software assurance does not include license mobility rights for products such as Windows, Office, or Windows Server. So customers must use software in more restrictive programs or on hardware dedicated specifically to these customers. An SA will, the software assurance will be modified to allow them to run licenses on any European cloud provider delivering services in their own data centers, similar to how they can do so on Azure today, whether the hardware is dedicated or multi-tenant. And this will make it easier to license Windows servers for virtual environments and the cloud by relaxing licensing rules that reflect legacy software licensing practices where licenses are tied to physical servers. Oh, thank God. But only for European customers. No, it's, they, they clarify later this is global. Uh, they just haven't announced the details of the global changes, but this will be rolling out globally, but very focused on European data center companies right now because that's who started the antitrust complaint. Right. Other details included European cloud provider support teams and forging a closer partnership with European cloud providers. Uh, and they highlighted here an interesting little piece. We have completed or are now constructing 17 data center regions in Europe and are rapidly expanding our footprint across the continent. Since 2020, we have announced plans to build nine new data center regions in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Greece, Italy, Poland, Spain, and Sweden, which launched last November, the Sweden one. During the past two years alone, we have made an investment exceeding $12 billion, making Microsoft one of the largest sources of capital for Europe's technology future, which is really interesting because if you go do some research on what's happening in the EU right now, there's actually a lot of pushback on the cloud providers and their data center footprints uh, there's an article in Ireland about uh, the fact that data centers are now taking up more power than residential houses in the country. Uh, there was also uh, talk of a moratorium in the Netherlands, as well as in Spain. And uh, I think this is just the beginning of maybe an interesting story that's starting to happen in Europe around data centers and data center power consumption, which kind of goes back to the sustainability conversation as well. Well, the, the reason tech companies went to places like Ireland, though, is because they're incentivized by incredibly favorable tax um, laws, tax rules, tax tax rates. And so, I mean, they really only have themselves to blame at this point. Dell's huge in Ireland. Lots of things are big in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... And that was the plan, right? Ireland, they that was they wanted that. to draw business there. They, yeah. they made those tax very favorable. And so it's funny, yeah, the, the backlash of like, now you're using all of our power, sort of. Yeah, well, that's, and that's the problem is they're not building power plants fast enough to support all of the power demand they have in those countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a possibility that these cloud providers may get pushed back on building new data centers in the region, which could be a huge detrimental impact. So keep an eye on that. I don't know, you know, nothing I've seen really publicly beyond these articles, which are all, you know, very, very biased towards a very anti-expansion, not in my backyard mentality, but uh, interesting groundswell, if you will. Yeah, it's it's tough though because not in my not in my backyard is is great, but when when you have legisl legislation, whether it's privacy rules or anything else, got data governance requiring somebody to be in your backyard, you know, you kind of can't have it both ways. You got to be supportive of that growth if you want to use that technology or um, or not. Like, make one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely be interesting to see if it if something starts happening there and and data center capacity is getting limited. Um, you know, it could get very dicey for cloud providers if they can't build fast enough to support demand. And we're all over, wow. you know, if you go back to Italy and the issues that happened during COVID beginning and Amazon, and, sorry, Asia not having the capacity, that could become a more common scenario. Hmm. That's interesting. I have these visions now of like uh, nuclear power stations on boats that, that moor themselves off countries and just deliver tons and tons of power to data centers through, uh, you know, undersea cables. That could be some money in that. <laughs> I mean, like, I think right now you build a data center, you build, you know, a couple thousand wind farms, and that's how you're offsetting mm -hmm. your your power use. Yeah. yeah. Your data center goes on the boat, and you just park it in the middle of the wind farm. Yeah. <laughs> well, Microsoft started looking into that, didn't they? Microsoft built a data center in a sub and, and uh, dropped the thing in the ocean somewhere off of Scotland or something like that for a while. Yes, they did. Yeah. We talked about that. Um, you know, the other side of it, in like Spain, solar power is pretty good for you in Spain. It's not great for you in the UK, but uh, you know, parts of Europe are sunny. Not all yeah. of it. I, I, Just I heard, Spain, I think. I heard the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. 
That's such a Britishism. Okay. <laughs> it is. It's to teach people <laughs> to speak proper. Yes, yes, it is. All right, well, let's move on to the... Uh, no, it doesn't work. For me, at least. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the lightning round. Uh, Jonathan is going to start the reading, and we'll do round robin through this once again. Let's get started. I need to do... Uh, I need to get, like, a, a voice sample of Peter or something so we could just make it sound like he's here when he's not. <laughs> nice. An AWS control tower can now use customer-provided core accounts. Why would you want to have all your users in this brand new account you just created so that you can manage everything through Control Tower? That seems exactly what you want to do. The core of any good tower is a core. (laughs) Amazon VPC now supports multiple IPv6 CIDR blocks. All right, Ryan, how did you use 18 quintillion, 446 quadrillion, 740 trillion, 73 billion, 790 million, 540, 51,616 IP addresses that you now need more of them? Come on, man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Lambda. <laughs> Touche. Hey, no. They did fix that eventually. <laughs> eventually. Amazon CloudWatch Synthetics add support for canary resource deletion when a canary is deleted. <laughs> this just makes me laugh, just the title of it. Like, whoops, did we forget to delete the things when we delete the thing? <laughs> they sure do. Because I found a bunch of them. Uh, I found a bunch of dead canary resources, which, you know, they really should, you know, steer into this canary thing more. We could have, can, you know, dead canaries, dying canaries. We could have birds everywhere. <laughs> Kind of reminds me of the Monty Python dead parrot sketch. Mm-hmm. <sighs> You're up, Jonathan. <laughs> For those who can't see on video, he got, you can see the fuck on his face as he's like. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find the right tab. <clears throat> Amazon VPC traffic mirroring now supports sending mirrored traffic to gateway load balancer backed monitoring appliances. Which is all the rage for people who like to burn money. Every day, mm-hmm. all day, every second, spend all that data to the managed uh, load balancer, and then send it to appliances you're paying another vendor for lots of money to uh, ingest all of your data. Perfect. Yep. And yeah, I mean, security teams like to burn money, and so now they can do it not tied to a physical, uh, well, I guess not really physical, but a single interface. So, yes, yeah, so they can burn money faster. That's what the mm-hmm. is here. Mm-hmm. Administer AWS single sign-on from a dedicated member account in your organization. Uh, you know, I'd, yeah, you could definitely give your delegated account to uh, your security team to then mess up all the sign-on for your organization. It's a great strategy. I highly recommend it. Nothing can go wrong. I believe previously the alternative, though, is that you had to host single sign-on out of your master account. So. Yes, it had to be out of <laughs> yeah, your organization master. It wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> So it's going to get messed up one way or the other. I think this way is safer. AWS Private Link announces support for IPv6. (laughs) Just in time to add that new CIDR block to your VPC. I mean, all I can think here is Amazon had a hackathon. and They're like, IPv6 is our theme. We're doing IPv6, people. We've got a lot of IPv6 to do. Hackathon for the day. Is it me again? Just yes, kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> that long delay usually means that, yes. Yeah. As we all stare at you. <laughs> maintenance made flexible. Google Cloud SQL launches self-service maintenance. Because I love paying Next. for a fully managed service that I have to self-service. Thanks. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those vacations where you go and you actually have to do work on a ranch or something. Like, why? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, self-service maintenance. It's way better than the self-service outage feature they released last week. Extending BigQuery functions beyond SQL with remote functions, now in preview. I mean, what do you do with this? Like, wh- why? Why do I want this, te- this technology that connects to remote boxes and remote functions and different things? Like, ugh. No, BigQuery it, is just is... getting, it's like a spider that just keeps taking over everything and building webs of, of data that it consumes. If you miss troubleshooting the performance impacts called by stored procedures, now you can embed it into BigQuery. <laughs> with a remote function. Perfect. <laughs> wow, with Anthos, you could run these, these remote functions anywhere. That's right. Including your house and your garage to really make your system slow down. <laughs> Google Cloud is forming a dedicated Web3 team. 
Step one, understand what Web3 is and then talk about it loudly on the internet everywhere. I wonder how long they thought about whether they're going to do this or not before they reached a consensus. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> if Peter was here, that would have definitely been a winner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going out on a zinger. Yeah. That's yeah. A point. yeah. yeah that's a point. Anyway. Uh, all right. Well, Google Cloud Summit series continues uh, with Startup Summit on June 2nd, just a few short weeks away. And then June 9th with the Applied ML Summit. The DevOps uh, Enterprise Summit uh, just finished up, so I'll skip that one. Uh, RSA is June 6th through the 9th. There's also PagerDuty's Summit on June 7th, I just found out about, in San Francisco. And then Remars is following right after that, June 21st through the 24th. And then Reinforce in Boston, June 28th through the 29th. Curious to see what comes out of Reinforce this year. Is Amazon going to cut their partners, or are they going to continue to partner with terrible solutions? Only time will tell. We'll find out. That's another fantastic week. Is that the name of the company? Terrible Solutions Inc. <laughs> it should be. It should be. Yeah. Think about that Pager Duty conference too, though. Like, I wonder how many people actually show up. Like, they arrange the big, arrange the whole thing and realize everyone's actually on call. Nobody shows up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I controlled my way into a free ticket, so I'm going to check it out. Nice. Oh, nice. It's only it's actually pretty cheap. It's only two hundred dollars, but I I'm a customer, so give me a ticket for free. Mm. <laughs> I pay you lots of money. You can give me three tickets. <laughs> All right, all. Well, have another fantastic week in the cloud. We'll see you next week. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.